What's up, friends? Welcome back to another episode of the New Evangelicals Podcast. So glad to be here with you. Thank you for stepping into our space and listening to this episode of the podcast. If this is your first time, thank you and welcome. My name is Tim. I'm the facilitator and creator of the New Evangelicals. We exist primarily for folks marginalized by the evangelical church, helping them think about ways forward in the Christian tradition. And this podcast is one of the ways we do it. Speaking of which, on this episode, I have Derek Webb, who actually was someone very well-established in the evangelical Christian contemporary worship space, and he eventually left it all behind to think about better ways of being Christian. So this is kind of his story. We nerd out on music. We nerd out on theology. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. That being said, as always, thank you so much for listening, as I say every single episode. If you can help us out and subscribe um, and rate the podcast, If you like our podcast, that would be so helpful. Also, I want to mention, friends, that we are now two weeks away from New Evangelicals and many other amazing podcasts that you're probably listening to and amazing theologians like Pete Enns, Dr. Robin Henderson Espinoza, Trip Fuller, Diana Butler Bass, and so many others who will be at Theology Beer Camp God Pod Edition. You can get your tickets in the link in our show notes. Type in TNE in the checkout to get $50 off your ticket. I am looking forward to this. It's going to be a great time of listening to people who are just brilliant, thinking about better ways of being Christian, and I hope to meet so many of you. Um, I've heard from quite a few that you've gotten tickets, and it's going to be just a lot of fun. I also want to say, just to throw this out there, I really appreciate that so many folks listen to our podcast. It means a lot. We talked about maybe a few weeks ago that we are looking into sponsorships uh, for the podcast. If that's you, if you if you have a product or a business and you're thinking about maybe getting it out there a little, a little bit more and you want to uh, be a sponsor of the podcast, you can email us at thenewevangelicals at gmail.com where we can talk and see if it's going to be a good fit. We also are going to experiment with some different types of ads. So you might hear different things happening on future episodes as we kind of experiment with best ways just to uh, um, get some monetization in uh, for the podcast that, that does not withhold any of these episodes behind paywalls up or, or Patreon accounts. It's super important because we believe in 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 helping people out and giving things away for free um, at no cost to the community and looking into sponsorships or donations as we've uh, always been doing are just some great ways to do that uh, without worrying about trying to put things behind our Patreon account. So we are looking into that. We want to start putting a little bit more money into the podcast to kind of develop it. Uh, we we are doing about 60,000 downloads um, um, uh, a month now, which is just really, really unbelievable to me. I can't believe people listen to the show uh, and I'm honored. I'm honored and humbled. So anyway, like I said, if that to you. If you're interested in maybe sponsoring a podcast episode and you have a business or product, shoot me an email, thenewevangelicals at gmail.com. We can see if it's a good fit and we can go from there. All right, friends, without further ado, here's my episode with Derek. Oh, one more thing. I lost my um, GarageBand audio for this recording. Don't ask me how, but I did. So my audio might not sound that great on this episode, but I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But we are switching over to a different podcasting platform that should solve that problem in the future. All right. Talk to you all later. Well, Derek Webb, this is very cool. It's great to have you on the podcast. Honestly, thanks for making time. I'm sure you're busy and it means a lot. So thank you. 
Well, you are the busiest man in, uh, you know, the new evangelical deconstruction world by <laughs> far. So I'm very happy that you found time in your schedule to talk to me. So I told you this before we started recording. I'll tell the audience, you know, I, I know you were in a Christian band and I know your name, but I don't know much more about you. And I purposely kept it that way so we can unravel this together. I just Love think it. for interviews like this, it's just a better conversation because I'm kind of uncovering with the audience. It's just yes. fun. Yeah. So, so I want to start here. Why don't you kind of give us some of your background? I mean, who is yeah. Derek Webb? How did you grow up? And then how did you kind of get to where somewhere where you are yeah. now? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'm a product of the South. I, I was born in Memphis, Tennessee. Um, I'm almost 50. So I was born in the 70s. Wow. And, um, and Memphis to, to Houston. So when I was like probably about to start high school, right before high school, I moved to Texas and I was there until the early 2000s. And I've been in Nashville which is where I'm now ever since. So I've been in Nashville for about 20 years. Okay. So always lived in the South, grew up in the church, grew up United Methodist, uh, was confirmed at 13, the whole deal. Mm. Uh, wound up in high school. Uh, that was not a especially meaningful thing to, to me beyond it being the language of my community and my family and my generally, you know, where I grew up or whatever. It wasn't like it, you know, it was uh, my, my mom grew up, um, like Baptist and my dad grew up Catholic. So they raised us Methodists. That was okay. kind of their compromise. And I don't think it meant a ton to either of them necessarily. And, uh, and then wound up um, in high school getting mixed up with young life, which is a mm -hmm. uh, high school parachurch organization, non-denominational deal. And which was, which was uh, a cool, a cool enough thing for me. It was mostly because young life can be pretty hit or miss depending on who the leadership is and who, who's kind of, overseeing whatever area you're in. But um, Kit Sublett, who was the the leader in the part of Houston where I lived, was like this weirdo intellectual nerd, but really weirdly cool. And he was like a real hero and he was great. So it made that experience for me really good. But that kind of took up my spiritual um, guidance, kind of got shifted over to Young Life. So I was not involved really with a church or whatever for a while. And then... Mm -hmm. Um, kind of thought out of high school that maybe I would try to do that or something. I didn't really know what I would do. So the other parallel narrative is that when I was like eight, seven or eight years old, I found music and mm. um, I'm like, I'm small and I'm not super coordinated and I'm not especially handsome or anything. So I didn't really have a ton going for me as a kid. But when I was, I found a guitar in my mom's closet when I was like seven or eight years old and just immediately took to music. It was just mm. like, and my mom's a musician um, a really gifted musician actually. And so that was kind of in the DNA. I found that luckily very early, but did not know what to do with that. So all the things that were being measured during my childhood and early adolescence, I was terrible at all of those things, all the things that were being measured. Hmm. So like, um, uh, education, social sports, whatever all the things are, yeah. I was terrible at all those things, but I was really pretty freakishly good at music from a pretty young age. I just really took to it. It was fun. It was easy. By the time I was like 11 years old, I'd learned every song on Van Halen one. Oh, um, okay. Wow. And that's for sure what I grew up with is like, so for the first 10 years, I was like wanting to be Eddie Van Halen or Steve Vai <laughs> or, or, yeah. or, or Paul Gilbert or something. Yeah. Like sure. I loved those guys. Um, all the, the shredder dudes. And like, I was super into that. So that was like, so I had my 10,000 hours done on the guitar by the time I was in like the seventh grade, you know, like I, I, I but it, 
eclipsed everything. I didn't do anything else. I didn't, I was terrible in school. I was right. terrible. I didn't do anything else. So, um, that was my kind of my one thing and my one kind of North star. That was the one I've, I've often said that like when I got to high school, luckily I did not have an experience like Steve jobs supposedly had, you know, where he, I, I didn't like go out to the desert and drop acid and, and come back Jimi Hendrix or something like right. the, the, I had this one experience when I was, uh, I was always in bands with older, older dudes. And so when I was, uh, a freshman, I was in bands with seniors and college dudes. And I was like the, the little guitar. I was like the lead guitar player. I didn't sing. I didn't write songs. It was nothing like that. I was just a kind of a metal head. And okay. So you were a shredder. I was a shredder. Absolutely. Absolutely. I know Got all, it. I knew all of my, uh, you know, my harmonic scales and my mixolydian, whatever scales and all that stuff. <laughs> so anyways, um, I, there was, I was at this one party, we played a ton of parties and stuff in high school and dances mm-hmm. and whatever it was and battled the bands and stuff in Houston. And I was at this one party and, and, um, uh, somebody gave me a wine cooler, which is like a, you know, a hangover in a bottle. And <laughs> yeah. it was, it was kind of my first, it wasn't my first, but it was like my first social alcohol, let's say. Sure. Um, um, and so I drank this thing and it didn't taste like any of that. It tasted fine, whatever. And then I went to play the gig and I played terrible. And it was like, it absolutely ruined me yeah. for, and so <laughs> after that night I went home and I was like, well, I will never do that again because. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. everything was like, if it makes me a better guitar player, I'm, I'm, I'm obsessed with it. If it makes me a worse guitar player, I'll never touch it. And it kind of kept, so like music kind of kept me out of trouble all through high school. I didn't have my, my next drink probably till I was 21, literally. Cause I was just like, that was my only ethic was like, is it making this one thing better? Cause to me, I found music and I was like, this is what's gonna, it was like that this was, that's, what's going to get me out of this small town kind of thing. It was like, this is what's going to get me out of here. Yeah. And I, I just want to mm-hmm. clarify for the audience who maybe yeah. isn't a musician. You definitely, it's hard to describe that bug where, yes. in, you know, tell me what you think about this, Derek. But for me, it, it became like, 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 like a badge and an identity of like, I am this person Absolutely. and I know my shit and I can, I know I can play. And I know yeah. when I touch that guitar, people are going to be impressed. I put the work in. Yes. Right. And Absolutely. so when you're, when you're thinking about that, Anything that would hinder you, and that's why, honestly, when I play these gigs, you know, I get free alcohol. I rarely drink because right. if I play sloppy, who's your biggest critic? It's me. You know, Absolutely. all the all the drunk people don't care, but I no. care. So that that makes a yeah. lot of sense. And for the audience out there who might not be familiar with with, with that world, it's it's yeah. quite common when you're obsessed with something and it becomes that's- part of your identity. And that's exactly what it was. And nothing competed with it, like literally from eight years old until I'm 48 now, you know? So it's like, Mm. it is the only thing it, it, and, and, uh, and it was, and it was immediate and it was easy. And I was like, ah, like I finally found my thing. So I boxed out around it and protected it at all costs. And so it did keep me a lot, a lot of trouble, but it also kept me from like doing anything in school or being good at anything once I found it for sure. Cause I was so obsessed on it. And so I guess I was, I took that little rabbit trail to say young life did a good job of helping me find a, they were smart enough to say, all right, here's a kid who doesn't really know where, where, you know, doesn't have kind of a heading, but is a, is clearly a really good musician. That's his whole deal. Mm. So they got me playing at, uh, because one of the first things when I came back from Young Life Camp, they were like, you're going to have to talk to some people. You're going to have to get out of some relationships. You're going to have to make some changes. You're going to have, because you're, you're a new, if you, if you, uh, um, you know, made a decision or prayed the prayer or whatever at the Young Life Camp, which I did that one summer. Right. And so I came back and I was like, all right, I got to be ready to like make a move or whatever. So I came back to my rehearsals with the band I was with, which was actually doing really, the band was doing great. And I walked in, I was like, you guys, I just, I can't do this anymore. I, I got no priorities or I didn't really know what I was saying, but I knew that <laughs> right. I felt to me like it was like a, 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 putting a flag in the ground a little bit. I needed yeah. to do, I felt like I needed to do that. 
so all of a sudden I had no band, I had no nothing. And, and, and it had been junior high since I had not had a band to play in. And so the, uh, the guy who ran young life club, he said, well, you know, you need to come be our guitar player. So, so that's kind of what I did. And I kind of didn't know what I was going to do for a handful of years there. Cause I had, it was way too late to take school seriously. Mm. Um, all of a sudden I went from, you know, uh, there's my sweet dog downstairs. I went from <laughs> like, you know, years and years and years and years of, of, uh, you know, putting all the hours in to get as good as I could at this thing. And all of a sudden it was being distilled down to me playing, you know, brown eyed girl, right. uh, the guitar. So I was yes. way qualified. So for a minute, I really didn't know what I was going to do. And it was really not until I met the, the folks who I started the band that shall not be yet named, um, that I kind of, it all came together again. And I was like, mm. oh, like all this new stuff, this new belief and this new thing I found, plus yes. the music that I've loved for all this time, it kind of finally came together in this one opportunity. Yes. And that, and that was like a major pivot point for me that I can trace back, you know, to the sitting here today. Kind of. That is a very important thing to, I think, pick out here is for some people, I, I think you and I in this way are kindred spirits where my life has to be kind of integrated and I have to find yeah. reconciliation. So if, if if my spiritual life is not matching up to my music life, right, I feel incongruent. And for me, I think playing in those worship spaces for so many years, for me personally, I was always kind of at odds. Like, is this, is this what it, it means to be a Christian? Yes. But also I love doing it, right? So when you find yeah. something you love that, that meshes it together, that is a great feeling. I totally get that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I luckily, because my, because of the, because of the, the decade it was or whatever, there wasn't really like worship music wasn't a thing like it is now. Yes. It wasn't yet. Yes. It was like, right. it was different. There were like worship choruses and there were like songs that we would, but no one was per performing worship songs. Like there were, there was no such thing as worship product, uh, right. which, which there is now. Right. Elevation and, worship on tour was not a thing then. You know what no, I mean? No, <laughs> that would make no sense. In right. fact, I have a story that, that I don't have to uh, tell and certainly not right now, okay. but about the moment where I feel like that absolutely changed and I feel like I was there for it. But We'll come back to that. Okay, I'm marking okay. that down. <laughs> okay, great. Uh, but anyways, yes, yeah, so there wasn't that. So the, my only thing was I was like kind of strumming these like songs at at Young Life Club or whatever. Um, and then finally kind of walked, stepped into this or, or was just pulled into this opportunity to start a band. And that would have been like the first year I was out of high school. And so we started this band in Texas. Uh, Cademan's Call was the band. So, mm. they're, 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 yeah, so we were kind of a folk rock band. Yes. We Texas based. And, um, and so that started like that. So that was 92. That was like the same year I, gra I graduated high school. Um, that a friend of mine from high school had met this other guy and it's this whole story you don't need to know. But the point is I got pulled into it because they were starting this band, needed a guitar player. And so, and I, at that point, because of young life and getting into acoustic guitar more, um, I found singer songwriters. I found the Indigo girls and I found, mm -hmm. and, and basically I found all this great. And I went all the way back to Dylan, all the way back to Guthrie and all the way back to, you know, Joan Baez and, and Pete Seeger. And I found, I kind of, because I'm a super obsessive, I do nothing in moderation. So when, once I got out of electric guitar and got into acoustic, then I just OD'd on who are the best at this and like, mm. what is this space about? Right. And I found all these singer songwriters and all these great, um, you know, musicians and, and, uh, and writers and stuff. So, um, and that's exactly what Cadence was doing. Like, like it was essentially going to be, um, you know, kind of the Indigo guys. I mean, it was going to be, you know, like uh, the, you know, kind of that folk rock ethic and um, a college band. 
And because all our friends were in college. And so that was kind of the space that we were going to occupy. And it was more just kind of like Christian, young Christian people who, who were not finding the soundtrack for their version of reality anywhere in that space. Right. And, and no one was speaking that language or writing those songs for us. And so we we're like, well, then we'll write some songs and we'll try to provide soundtrack for this kind of no man's land between like youth ministry and, a, and young adult ministry. Like that, those college age years, they just drop you off. I mean, they're just, you're not, there's nothing really, or there wasn't at that time. Right. Um, because the younger kids have parents who have money and then the young adults have jobs and have money, but the college kids don't have any money. So there, there's right. no point marketing anything to them or making anything for them. Right. Uh, Cause they're not coming into your Christian bookstores or listening to your Christian radio stations. So there's no money to be made. Can I ask um, you one quick question? That's it's kind yeah, of a more technical musical question. But I'm kind of right. curious. Yeah. How do you, how did you feel going from, I can shred and therefore I'm a good player to now I'm not really shredding anymore. Right. How did you find your value in being a master at your craft? Because again, yeah. as, as a drummer going for more prog stuff, yeah. playing in five and in seven to so, do it again by elevation, I had to reimagine how I deemed success or, or how I deemed professional. Right. What was yeah. that like for you? Or how you measure how you're even doing right. that. Like, am I good? You know, right, like, I'm, I'm right. four of the four the whole time, right? Right, right. So, right. Yeah. Anybody yeah. could appear good at that um, yes. without actually having to be. That's a great question, man. I, uh, You and I, I have a feeling, could probably do a whole other podcast just for musicians or ex-musicians. <laughs> but um, but then that's a great question. And so, because there was not that opportunity, there were no, there are no guitar solos in, right. I mean, actually in Indigo Girls, thanks to Emily Sallers, there, there are some great guitar solos, but on the whole, there aren't. And so, and I certainly had not found that space and that was a whole other deal for me. So honestly, here's the gift that I had. Yeah. Tell me. Is, so when I landed with the, with the folks, with the Cademans people and we, was, and we started that band. So that was 92. Okay. Um, uh, when we started that band, the reason that I was being recruited in is because uh, my buddy from high school, a guy named Aaron Tate, he was a savant songwriter, incredible songwriter, but not a musician, like not mm. a singer, not a, not a guitar player, just crazy. I don't know if you ever met anybody like this, but like he had these insane gifts for songwriting, but just was not even it, not interested in and also not especially good at playing guitar and singing. He, and, but, and then uh, he uh, met up with a guy named Cliff Young and Cliff was from Houston um, and Cliff uh, and I mean this as an absolute compliment. He's one of my dearest friends is just an absolute opportunist. So mm. he is one of these guys who stepped to in a moment. He's like, some, some, there's a, there's yes. something needs to be done right now. That's not being done. Right. And if I don't do it. I don't know if it's going to get done. And I, and I, he sees opportunities yeah. and um, I've, tr I've tried to learn that from him over the years. But so anyways, he heard Aaron's song. So they went to college together in, in Texas somewhere. Okay. And, and he walked by as the, as the, the, the lore goes, he walked by Aaron's room and heard Aaron playing these songs and walked in and was like, Hey man, are you like a, are these your songs or whatever? And Aaron was like, yeah. And he was like, these are really good songs. Like, do you, are you in a band or do you know, do you want to like start a band? And he was like, no. <laughs> and, and so Cliff was like, well, could I start a band? Right. And songs? <laughs> Honest to God, that's what he said. And Aaron was like, Sure. Yeah. Sure, yeah. I mean, yeah. Because it's like, he wasn't doing anything with them and they were right. legitimately great songs. And so Cliff was like, cool. Can you introduce me to any guitar players? I mean, immediately like, all right, what else can I get? And Aaron was like, yeah, I do. I know this, this, this kid from my hometown back in Houston, who's really into this kind of music. I think he'd probably dig it. Let me give you his number. So Aaron gave Cliff my number. We met up and, and, and I was, and my, I had no idea Aaron was a songwriter, let alone wrote these amazing songs. So 
I heard these songs. I met Cliff. Cliff was a guy who like knew, he seemed to like, he was a guy with some confidence. Like he was like, knew what to do. Like, and right. he was like, all right, man, I'm going to get these other, and we're going to, we've all got friends at all these Texas colleges, man. Let's go around, let's play some gigs and let's get a thing going. And before I knew it, within three or four years, we had a pretty huge indie thing going on. Like we were touring all over the South and the Midwest. And, and we uh, w- had made two indie records, which in the nineties was hard to do because there were, it was before the internet. Right. It was before, you don't go viral. <laughs> No, in that way, unless you're yeah. doing it, unless you're doing it through the U S mail, literally. Right. Right. And so, right. um, and, but we did though. So we, and we, we made a couple of indie records because Cliff's dad was a big pastor in Houston and their church had a recording studio in it. Mm. Cause it was so big. And so we wound up, um, and I'll just drop this little thing for you, but Cliff's Cliff is the youngest of three brothers. His oldest brother is Ed Young Jr. Uh, um, who you might know if not, there's definitely, wait, some I'm sorry, the pastor. The, the guy that I just yeah. did a reel to just 10 minutes before hitting yeah. this record button with you. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I know Ed very well, actually. We've played in his church a hundred thousand times, but he, I, I'm not, okay. I'm not I need saying, to have I'm you back saying, on over and over. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm not saying that he's not yeah. nuts. I'm just saying Interesting. Cliff, Cliff's oldest brother is Ed. Cliff's middle brother is Ben. He still works at the same church where Cliff's dad is still the pastor in his in his 90s or 80s now, Ed Young Sr., he was the president of the Southern Baptist Convention for many years. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. And so Cademan's played at the Southern Baptist Convention. He got us the gigs and stuff. We, Whenever we had a new record out, Cliff's dad would have us play at their at their services at Second Baptist. Their, their worship center held like 8,000. So we would play three services in a Sunday and we'd have the number one record in the country in our in our genre the next week, easily, just from the sales after church. So it was kind of a coup. It was kind of like, it was like the, it was like a Malcolm Gladwell thing of like, these things all just fell to our favor because of all these resources. Cliff's dad's church had a recording studio. So we were able to make two indie records and we sold like 60 or 70,000 of those out of our trunk before like 1995, before the internet. So we had all these great, all this great stuff just falling our way. It was like, it just, we had all these benefits that a lot of bands didn't have. And we were able to tour, and then we signed a record deal with Warner Brothers in the mid '90s, and that's kind wow. of wow. Yeah, so that was wow. kind of how we, got, how we got there. And then, and after a year or so, I started writing songs as well, and then was splitting the writing with Aaron. By the time we did our first label record, and so I was okay. singing singing vocals and writing songs and all that by about a year or two later. So wow, okay, it, I, it, I just dropped a lot on you. I know. Well, no, it, 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 well, thank you first off for doing that, and yes, you did, <laughs> but it's all good stuff because I, I think two. Thread I just want to pull out maybe for the audience to think about, you know, one thing that we talk about a lot in the evangelicals is how a lot of these people that we engage with are really connected to other people. Like it's all interconnected. And I think even you just talking about this connection to Ed Young Jr. just kind of reinforces like how, how intertwined the evangelical world is, even if you don't see it publicly, they all know each other. They're all intertwined, right? So, so that, that's helpful. I just want to make that as a little caveat for the audience. Um, it, It really is interesting. Okay. So, so you found, you find success. And one thing I wanted to pull out too, and one, one other thread briefly I do want to get into kind of more of your personal journey. I know there's a lot to unpack there, but um, have you ever thought, you know, I know we're not hearing your story yet, but I'm obviously out of evangelical spaces. I'm sure you are too. I'm guaranteed that you are. Um, But have you ever looked back and been like, you know, for all of the bullshit and all of like the real trash that was there, these institutions kind of gave me a way to actually hone my craft. And like, in a weird way, I'm kind of grateful for it. Like I play in this cover band, New Jersey. 
We have like tons of dates. I love doing it. And I got the gig because I spent years becoming a very uh, musical minded drummer that went from how many Travis Barker fills can I fit in one song? Right. To, (laughs) well, maybe less is more, maybe pocket is King. And that got me the gig in this world that I love. Right. But also, we critique the evangelical culture for being so harmful. So yeah. I kind of feel split there. I'm not sure if you thought about that or what your thoughts are on it. I, de- I definitely do. And, you know, Cliff's dad, you know, for all of the criticism he's gotten over the years, and less so in his older age, but you know, he's less edgy now, and, and Ed Jr. has taken that mantle. But, mm. like, and, and, and Cliff's dad was, Cliff's dad's an old school Southern Baptist. He was never doing any of the stuff that Ed Jr. does. But, but he, he was a very, he, he was and is a very big figure in, Houston politics in the Houston church world. And the, you know, before, uh, Osteen right. bought, bought the, the summit where I saw, you know, you two play the Joshua tree tour and defiled it with his church, uh, there mm-hmm. in Houston, you know, Ed, Ed Cliff's dad was the biggest, the biggest thing in town in terms of like the big, you know, he, he pioneered a lot of that stuff. And yet, and, and yes, it's very problematic. And Charles Spurgeon preached to a shit ton of people also every week, but it's like the, but the, all that said, Cliff's dad was like, he didn't know me from anybody. I was this, this weird, you know, this, this, this short dude with tattoos and a bald head that his son brings home. He gave me like my first job. He kind of bet mm. on me and he helped me out and he helped, helped me find a place to live when I was first joined the band. And he treated my, he treated me like family and, um, and he was extreme and the family was extremely kind to me over the years. And, and, you know, it, in personal dealings, Ed, as crazy as he is, you know, in general and definitely on the internet, He's, he's been nothing but kind to me over the years and was very supportive of our band and gave us gigs when we didn't have gigs and, um, and helped kind of. And so the way that I think about the exact question you're asking is like, when I think about, like, for instance, I have on this arm over here, I've got, I've got, I have tattoos and uh, on this arm, I've got like the, the five cries of the Protestant Reformation on one arm that I got when I was a younger man. Would I get this tattoo today? Absolutely not. But, <laughs> but would I have it removed? No. And the reason is sure because it's kind of the, it's a wonderful life syndrome. It's like, if I, if I was able, and I try to encourage my friends who I know have gone through really hard things and have a hard time reconciling it with just because it's hard and I have been through some hard things and I've caused some hard things. And so yeah. and I, and I take ownership for those things. But when I look at my life now and I think if I could go back and surgically remove all of the hardest things about my story and, and the, the hardest things that I've even, that either I've gone through or things that I've caused other people to have to go through, if I could go back and remove those things, I would literally, and then come back to today, it would be like back to the future too. It would be like, I'd be on a skewed timeline and all those things are, are hard as all of, a lot of it has been is all part of how I got here. And here is a pretty good place. Like I'm, mm. I'm really happy, you know, I and mean, I've gone through a divorce. I've gone through some career changes. I've gone through some, de- some deep deconstruction and change of belief and worldview. And yet I'm remarried and I have, you know, teenage kids and I have a life and a job and work that I love. And I've got a community who I feel you know, uh, very safe with. And I wouldn't have any of those things if not for, in some cases, directly back to some of the hardest things in my story. So it's like, if I misplaced those things, I would, I would, the whole thing would, would unravel. And so it's really true. Like it's by way of some of the most complex parts of your story that you arrive at a place that you might really be grateful for. And for me, that is absolutely where I am. I'm extremely grateful for the life that I have. Um, But it's by way of a pretty hard story in some spots. Yeah, so. I, yeah, yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense, and I, it also helps me remember that people are complicated too. 
Yeah. Um, you know, we we try not to dehumanize people because I think it's easy, especially on the internet, just to be like, well, this person's all bad. They're just they are right. the villain in the shadows, just trying to destroy people. But right. people are complicated, and people yeah. who who commit a lot of harm can also do good. I mean, you know, yes. some might not, not 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 like to hear that, but that's just the reality. You know, like it, it's complicated. Yeah. It um, doesn't excuse so what helpful. people do, but it right. does ex- help explain it. Maybe yeah. in some instances, it's like because right. I would never try to excuse certain things in my past, but I would, but I would definitely say like it's 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 like it's like you know with every anecdote version of the story, like uh, it, where like there are things that led to people. I, I don't think people are inherently bad or good. I think everybody has the inherent potential to be a hero or villain in, in, in any story that they find themselves in. And it's just a matter of what choices people make. And, and then even if there are dramatic failings, what choices they make as a result of those choices and failings or successes. And so like, what choices do people, do people get entitled and privileged or do people get humble and do they elevate people around them? Like, what people do with success or failure tells you everything about them. How people treat their enemies tells you much more about them than how they treat their friends. Yeah. Um, and things like that. So it's like, it is, it's extremely complicated. So you have That's to hold wise. all that together. It all belongs. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. All right. So you have hit it big. You're in a, you're in a band, you signed Warner brothers. You're doing, I mean, that, that is a dream. That, that, that's a major right. record label. That means tour. That means, you know, money, potentially all that kind of stuff. Um, so at this point with your faith, you know, are you pretty much firmly evangelical? You know, are you more in the charismatic tradition, a little more reformed? Right. Is the band kind of on the same page? Where right. are you with, with some of that stuff? Such good questions. Um, and I would say I was kind of, I, it, if I'm really honest, I would have answered this question differently even 10 years ago or, or mm. previous, but like, I don't really, I don't, I don't, I think I was just so happy to have friends and have a yeah. thing to do and have found a place in the world that sure. I wasn't super committed to any of it, but, but what I would have said is I was squarely evangelical. I grew up Methodist and then Baptist. Um, I was implicitly, unknowingly a little reformed mm-hmm, and then mm-hmm. got, and then got very reformed. Um, ah. but, because, because what happened was the band was going. So when Warner, when Warner signed us, you know, we were just a college band and we were again, like we were writing so- the songs that Aaron was writing. I was writing. We were just writing. We, yes, we were writing songs from our perspective. How can you not? I mean, an artist's job is to look at the world and describe it. So, of course, it's going to have all the fingerprints of the, the, the grid through which you could look at the world all over it. Um, and so that said, you can't really hide that sort of thing. We were mostly just writing about all kinds of things. But Warner was like, how do we market the, these people? And so when they realize, oh, some of these folks are like Christians and that's kind of the, the, one, the, one of these guys' dad is a pastor. Great, Christian. So they put us on an imprint that kind of, sorry for my sweet dog no, downstairs. No problem. But, um, but uh, so uh, they, they, they wound up putting us on an imprint that handled kind of their Christian music. And so that's how we wound up on a being marketed to um, and promoted to kind of the Christian music world, which initially they told us would not work. Um, because we weren't really doing what was happening in Christian music at that time. So like, you're never, you're not going to be on the radio. You're not going to, but we, but you, you have, who you was have big around that time though? Like, give me, give, give me a few bands. Um, like, like who was really dominating the airwaves? It would have been like, it would have been like Stephen Curtis Chapman. And, okay. and it was kind of the big, the biggie, Stephen Curtis Chapman, Amy Grant. Point um, of Grace, For Him, that kind of stuff. Gray. Yeah, uh, exactly. Avalon. Yes. Yep. And, and it was mostly, if you can remember back this far, it was mostly just songs that were, just generally kind of not great versions of 
what would they would have called secular music. It was like a designer imposters. It was like yeah. people who were not making worship songs. They were just making songs about their lives, but the bridge was always very clearly anchoring it to the Lord or whatever. Right. Um, so, you know, like bad love songs that were about God or, it, sure. but it wasn't like it is now. It was, it was, you wouldn't know it at first and right. you'd have to be like, wait, what is this? A, oh no, here it comes. And it would be like, um, but anyways, so, but we wound up absolutely shockingly having a ton of success because of a guy named um, Chris Hauser. And Chris Hauser is one of the unsung heroes. Um, he was the in-house radio guy who's now a legend Christian radio guy. There's not a huge hit that winds up on Christian radio to this day that the Chris is not the guy behind it. And huh. he is one of the most progressive guys you've ever met in your life, actually. Oh, thank God. <laughs> secretly, like, the, the, not even really secretly, but he is a tremendous, smart progressive, nuanced individual. Um, you just need to go look him up on social media to find out. But, um, but he's also, and, and he was already at his, at his full power. And he just like worked our songs against the wishes of the president of the label. who was like, we can't put a dime into Christian radio. These guys aren't going to, that's not what's happening. He did it anyway, kind of nights and weekends and wound up getting us like four number one songs off our first record. And wow. suddenly we were on the radio and suddenly we went from playing colleges to big churches because we were in the system at that point. So suddenly we had like a, a booking agent and we were yeah. on this, this Christian label and we had like a manager who was like, and so all of a sudden they're like, oh, like I know you guys are used to playing like 800 seats, 1200 seats at a college. We need to put you in the 2200, tw you know, 2500 seat at the big church in town. Right. At the time we were like, holy shit, this is great. Like we're, right. we're in, now we're, in, we're out of vans and buses and suddenly yeah. we're, we're like, you know, we're, it's, 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 it's starting to. There's production. There's yeah, the just, tide is growing. rising. Yeah. Yeah. And so all of a sudden it was great. And we didn't, we weren't really thinking twice about all that. We were just like, well, let's just, let's just follow the momentum of it. Totally. And, and, and so what was happening though for us is I think that was a little thrust on us in terms of like, I don't know that our instinct would have been to have written like this very Christian forward kind of worldview forward music. I, that's not where we kind of naturally were, but mm. as that was happening, we're like, well, I mean, that's kind of where we are. And, and the more we're in that world, the more we're thinking about it. And we more, we do have things to say. And so that's the world we're now looking at. So that's, you know, as we describe it, it's going to, it's going to kind of fulfill its own prophecy a little bit. But, um, but then, um, Cliff's middle brother, Ben Young, who was a real subversive, uh, and he was a, he was a, a minister at Second Baptist Church. So he was kind of the, you know, kind of the middle brother, but he was doing all, he, he basically had this Sunday night service that he was doing that was very liturgical and very um, high church and kind of, um, and very reformed, hardcore reformed. And he, so he was kind of leading this secret high church reformed movement inside of Second Baptist Church, this huge kind of Southern Baptist megachurch in Houston and secret. And we were in on it with him and we loved it. And it was very like serious yep. and it was very like theological. It was yes. very meaty and <laughs> it was very like studying and reciting creeds and liturgies and, and responsive readings. And we were so into it. Um, I think as a response to all of the kind of everybody do your own thing, like it was like a lot of the younger Christians were kind of maybe uh, we had friends who were getting into who were maybe coming from more charismatic backgrounds who were just really liberated. I mean, it was kind of great, but they were, they were just kind of running free and yeah. running crazy and doing whatever they want. Kind of, it was, or a lot of, a lot of non-denominational churches in Texas at that time too. So, and they were kind of very dominating in, in our age group or whatever, but all of a sudden as a response to that, we were like, Whoa, this is like a cool alternative. Like we're yes. kind of into this. And so they were kind of, we were kind of doing hymns and like before that was a deal. And so, and he was a real mentor to us. Um, and so 
he was getting us into all this stuff. And so before you know it, we were like, like, um, we were reading, he would he'd just keep us in these book lists and all these friends of ours who were going off to seminaries, very reformed seminaries. So, so the, the, the un, um, I did not mean to give you such a long answer to your question, but we, we started getting very into all of us as a band, luckily, we, it wasn't just one or two of us doing it. All of us were like really ODing on reformed stuff. And like so RC like, Sproul, is that what you're into? Bro, my <laughs> copy of, of, uh, of, uh, what, what was his, what was his, what was the book, that really short book that was basically about predestination? I forget what the name of it, I've got it somewhere, but. I threw that book against the wall so many times it was just all tattered and beat to hell because I was so mad at it. Mm. Cause I was like, I refuse to believe this. And after all, I was like, well, shit, it's like, it just all kind of toppled over on I me. Mean, all the theology toppled over on me. And I was like, I, I can't really fight with it. I can't right. figure out how to argue with it. At that right. Time. Exactly. And, um, and so anyways, and you know, so next thing you know, I'm like literally taking, like, I'm like getting off a tour bus and I've got like Wayne Grudem systematic theology yeah. hardback <laughs> under my arm, like going oh, yeah. into the green room. And so <laughs> I, I was, so we got pretty hardcore into that. Oh, I feel that man. I and, feel and it. it got into some songs and in, in some ways that I'm not super proud of now. Songs mm. that just really aged poorly. Spring is basically a second holiday season. Mother's Day, Father's Day, weddings, the list goes on. And what better way to celebrate them than with Drizzly, the go-to app for alcohol delivery. Drizzly is the easiest way to shop local stores and compare prices on a huge selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get them delivered to your door. Download the app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. Must be 21 plus. Not available in all locations. But there is something I, I understand, and I don't have words for this, but I understand the feeling of being attracted to that like serious what is the gospel what is truth that liturgical sure. it's not it's not it, it almost feels more genuine in a weird way i mean i remember listening to paul washer's sermon the one that is titled like you know a uh, youth group is angered uh or whatever it was where paul washer pretty much says um on on the mic like i don't know why you're applauding me i'm talking to you and i'm like <laughs> oh my gosh paul washer is so serious so yeah. I, I i i get that kind of like draw to it i yeah. I totally understand. I totally yeah, get. and that's what it was for us. It was like, um, uh, it was like there was something external of us. Yes, that yes. was like. And I, so during that time, I wrote a song called "The Truth," and the chorus of it is, "I thank the Lord, the truth's not contingent on me." And I remember at that time saying to myself, you know, like, yes, I'm. I happen. We happen to be into some of this stuff. And that's what I'm reading. But you know what? If I didn't agree with it, I would just be wrong. I mean, I would. Yes. I would just, yes. And, and that, that would be fine. I would. I just wouldn't be correct. Um, but luckily, I do. It's funny how you always happen to agree with the thing that you think is objectively true, yes, um, regardless right. of what you think about it. But you know. But I was also I wrote a song called "Thankful," the chorus of which was like, "I'm so thankful I'm incapable of doing any good on my own," and it was this celebration of my depravity, and it was mm. like. Um, and, and it's a hard, yeah, I can't sing songs like that. Right. I, you know, under certain circumstances, but, right. um, but that's where we were. That's where we were. And so okay. as a band, we were very to the end. That was never like, we were very united in our being very hardcore reformed internally. That's what okay. happened to us for sure. All right. So, okay. So obviously you were there, <laughs> you're yeah, not yeah. anymore. And so, uh, yeah. so how did, how did that journey for you as Derek, you know, you find yourself in this successful band, you're aligned with your beliefs, with your bandmates. That's also, uh, from my understanding, pretty un uncommon in some of these spaces. You are deep into R.C. Sproul, very heavy, uh, you know, uh, dense stuff in theory anyway. Um, and and for you, what was the, at least the beginning maybe of like, 
maybe yeah. something's up here. What, are the, what was that? Well, okay. So now I'll just hit fast forward and we'll listen to it on triple time because, uh, to catch you up. So after 10 years in the band, so around the beginning of the two thousands, okay. um, I got married, um, okay. my, my first marriage, I got, I, I got married and which redefines every relationship you're in naturally. And it just, you just kind of take stock, you know, when you have a big life change like that, it just causes you to look at everything and rethink everything. And, and, um, 10 years in, in the band, the band had gotten to a point where everything was good, but we had kind of figured out how the system and how the game kind of worked. And, you know, um, Aaron Tate, who was a caveman songwriter and still one of my greatest pals, all the caveman's people still are. We just did a thing together, actually. We're doing a oh. thing now. Uh, we're, we're, we're doing a, we're doing a 25 year anniversary of our first record thing. We're literally right now. Um, which has been lovely. But anyway, Aaron said to me back then, he was like, man, be careful because the the two things that will ruin a band are success and failure. And especially in that order. And so the band early in our career had huge success, really easy, easy, easy. And then a few years into it, we were not getting the things that we had initially been given and didn't even care or know about and, but were being handed to us a few years later, we were not getting those things anymore. And it caused us to question our relevance. It caused us to question. And the the way I've said this uh, that I think makes sense is like, it's like when you're early on in a, in a, in a, in a career as a creator and you're, and you don't have a platform yet, then you're, you're, you're low to the ground. And so you get kind of, and you kind of start to build a little platform, but being on it gets you naturally knocked off of it. And so that's kind of, cause you're like up there really saying stuff and you're like really using it for what it's, what you have it for, which is to get yeah. on it and like say things. And that's how the band started. But then what happened was once you transition um, into the platform maintenance business, Mm. then it's a very different set of ethics. And all of a sudden you're like, when you don't have the popularity or perceived relevance that you had a few years before when your platform was low, which is really the thing that enabled you to do it. Um, once your platform's uh, higher, then suddenly you start to tell yourself, oh, like we should really speak out about this. We should, you know what, like th- this is a topic that no one's really talking about. We should really write about this. We should really... You know, but that would be kind of gnawing on the hands that feed us. And, and we're mm. kind of, you know, we, 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 our, our last single didn't do what it did, what our first single off the last record did. And, and so what we need to do is we need to just get, get our platform a little higher and a little more stable. Then we're going to get on it and really say some stuff. That is your justification uh. for the rest of your career. You'll net, once you, once you, uh. in my experience and my friends, once you, once you pivot around that corner, you will never ascend that platform again ever. Huh. You will only ever live in fear of its height and its stability, and you will never ascend it again. And, the, wow. and so, and, wow. and that's where we got to. And it's like, because there were too many people's lives, people with kids and families and, and too many people wrapped up in this thing continuing to succeed. So you can't get on it and risk the whole thing getting toppled. And so what was happening is around that 10 year mark and around that first marriage, I started as a songwriter finding my voice a little more um, and finding like started to be like, you know what? Like there are some things that I'm seeing that, and, and here, and here's the, uh, I'm not even gonna tell you the whole story, but it's just the quick, I'll, I'll, I'll describe it and you'll know exactly. Uh, Cademan's was playing at a, one of these big conventions, the Christian bookseller CBA convention in Atlanta. We were playing this big thing and it's like a big showcase thing. It's like everybody comes to promote their stuff to all the people who uh, supply Christian bookstores with all the content that, that is there. So you do it every year and you come and you meet the people and you shake the hands, you do, you play the showcases. So we were playing this big kickoff showcase for CBA. It was the big, big, big one. It was like every single person who 
stocked Christian bookstores in the country was in this room. Um, so it's 100% of the people who are going to decide whether or not our, what kind of placement our record was, was going to wow. get. And the headliner was Bruce Wilkinson, who at that time was at the peak of his fame for having written the Priv Jabez. Mm. And it had sold, you know, 20 million. I mean, it was, it was an absolute breakout, runaway, crazy success for him. And thing for him, basically. And the whole night was stuff about the Prairie Jabez because it was the biggest shit in the world. Big, big, big deal. He was like on Good Morning America and he was on Oprah and he was on, you know, he was, it was that big. It had transcended genre, transcending. It got so big. And it's just, I'll just say and leave this here, but it's not based on anything remotely biblical. It's like based on one obscure Old Testament prayer that we, that was prayed one time by a guy we know nothing else about and we don't know even how what God did to answer it. And his right. book was, you pray it every single day for 30 days and God has to answer it and has to bless you. And it was like a, a formulaic systematic thing. So he he was right after us. Um, and, or no, no, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I, I threw the trip. He was just before us. We were closing. His, and everybody was there to see him. So he gets up for an hour and talks about prayer Jabez, talks about all this stuff. And I'm not going to go all into it, but we get up after him. I was so mad after having heard, cause I was saying, you know what? I want to hear him out. I want to hear him out. I know he's really been popular. I want to hear what he's got to say. Maybe I've just got it wrong. My, uh, our, we have pals in the, in the band Jars of Clay who had had a giant year a couple years before and everybody shit all over them just cause they got really successful. That's not their fault. They were just really good. And right. so I was like, I'm not, I'm not going to do that to this guy. So I heard him out. I was so mad after hearing what he had to say, because it was so like not anywhere remotely rooted in anything remotely like uh, uh, biblical or whatever, as far as I thought at that time, that boy, I got, I walked out of there steaming mm. and I went, I went back to my hotel that night and I wrote a song called wedding dress and wedding dress. I thought was a caveman's call song. And it was basically, you know, just about idolatry and about like, you know, just, and I'm not going to quote anything to you, but like, it was, it was, it was very cutting and it was very, and it was about me as much as God knows about Bruce Wilkinson, but it was a very cutting, very like, I'm coming after this type of idolatry kind of song. And it was like, and, it, and he, and a lot of people done it way before him or whatever, you know, just kind of tickled the ears of the church and what they want to hear and get their money. And so I wrote this song and I took it to the band and showed it to them. And they were like, wow, dude, like, so that's, that's like a super different song than you normally write. And it's like, we, it's powerful. We like it or whatever, but you know, you could never play that on right. stage. Like we, you know, you can't, you, you know, we can't let you, you can't play that because it, because it had whore in the tie in the, in the chorus. Uh-huh. I'm, I'm a whore. It was based on Ezekiel 16. I'm yeah. a whore. I do confess, but I put you on like a wedding dress and I run down the aisle. Um, I'm a prodigal with no way home, but I put you on like a ring of gold and I run down the aisle. It was this whole thing. And so they were like, yeah, we can't, we can't play that. And so that was what, Turned it, and I was like, "Oh, so I'm 10 years in this band. I just feel like I stepped into some new voice I found, you know, as a result of my righteous indignance or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm in a new relationship that's changed my life. I'm like, you know what? I, th- I never wanted to be a solo artist ever, but I think it might be time for me to go and risk my reputation on this. If I can't, you know, I've got this 10 year thing. I can't risk everybody's reputation on a song like this or a whole right. new approach like this. So." I went to him and I said, you guys, I think I need to go do my own thing. And it was, I never, ever, ever wanted to do it. Never saw it come and never had any ambition to be a solo artist. But it was at that point around 2002 that I, 10 years in the band, I left and pursued a solo career. And, uh, and I wrote, and that was my, that was like the first song I wrote for my solo career as it turned out. Wow. And, I, and so, and, and so my first record had a lot of songs like that on it. And, mm. and I started kind of getting and writing really tough 
for me, much tougher, like really going after the church a little bit and going mm-hmm. after really much, very, very much in the spirit of what you, what I resonate about what you do there is like really calling the church to task for the, its treatment. It's the way that its theology does not become ethics and therefore are clanging gongs and ringing cymbals and stuff, you know, and just like if what we believe about God does not directly affect our ethics and the way we treat people, we're right. not really believing anything and none of it means anything. It's probably doing more harm than good. And so that became kind of my approach to songwriting. And I, spent, you know, probably another 10 years nearly writing those songs on a very much smaller platform that I was thrilled to have because I'd had the perspective of the bigger platform. Right. And, and, uh, so that's where I kind of took, and so that really put me in a, in a different, that it took me off the big platform, but it put me in a space I really liked and, uh, still always on major labels, Christian labels and, and, uh, you know, but then just about, just about 10 years ago, um, I uh, went through a divorce Mm. and in the course of that divorce, learned a lot of hard things about myself, had a lot of mostly just real disappointment um, in who I, in who I was when it really came down to it in some hard situations and also went to the, it was, it was a, an opportunity for me to find out if this church thing that I had been doing my whole life, basically. Yeah. We'd been, I'd been practicing it. Well, now it's showtime. Now I know the church, they love to talk about, you know, radically confessing sin and being, you know, radically really doing life together and really being known yes, in yes, confession. Yes. But when you start to really do it, they love it in the hypothetical, but you start right. really doing it and they start, you know, uh, detaching and they start, uh, they, you know, they start uh, excommunicating and they start to kind of like, and so it gets, it makes people very uncomfortable. And so I was like, I, I just, the, I, and it was like my opportunity to find out if this, if, if not only the church thing, the church thing and the God thing are two completely, obviously completely separate things. Mm. Um, you can't judge one by the other, uh, by, in my experience. So was the church thing going to be there? Were these people going to leave me? Or were they going to hang with me and help me and be with me? And was the God thing going to deeply comfort me? Or was it going to be a thing I was going to be grabbing for and just it, grab it at thin air? Right. And um, that experience is what led me kind of, so that I kind of, it's almost like when you take a mortgage out to buy a home and you kind of throw some extra things in because that's such a big number. Right. It's right. Not gonna, it's not going to affect your monthly payment. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to throw. So I mean, I kind of did the divorce was the big thing. I kind of threw the deconstruction in because I was like, you know what? I'm just going to get all this shit done all in one season. Mm. Um, went on and made a record called fingers crossed, which was kind of my tale of two divorces. It was kind of my vertical horizontal divorce record. Um, and kind of, and so that, and that was in 2017 is when, is when that record came out, but it all started a couple years before that. So it's been not, you know, seven, eight years that I've been kind of on that side of a deconstruction and that's what kind of lit the fuse on it. Mm, okay. Um, um, all right. So yeah, that makes sense that you kind of, like you said, you use that mortgage analogy of like, I just kind of threw it all in there. Let's, let's get this through. So that's 2017. You're right. That you did that, that album. So where are you now then? You know I mean? Because I I feel like I call deconstruction an explosion. I don't even like using that term a whole lot these days. People land in different places. Some are like, Hey, I want to just be more faithful to Jesus and kind of explore the Christian tradition, yes. you know, process theology, liberation theology. Absolutely. Some are some are like, hey man, give me the exit ramp. Like I'm out. 
I'm going to be agnostic. I think atheism makes yeah. more sense for me. I yeah. get all that. I really do. Obviously, yeah. you know where we land. You see our content. But for you, like as of right now, where are you in this like spiritual disentanglement from evangelical right. fundamentalism? I guess. Yeah, yeah, and and you're right. It's it is different for everybody, and for some people, it's like a slow simmer to a boil. For some people, it's a sudden thing. Um, where I'm at with it, like I kind of rather than deconstruction, I like to think of like an audit, like it's like a real time audit that I am like really thinking through my presumptions about invisible reality and do they make sense in, in are they continuing to make sense? And like the, and so like w- the, the language that I have really liked and that I've kind of stumbled into is that I don't really have anything at this point that I would put the weight of the word belief on. And, mm. and this is just for me because it's, and, and some people have no problem. They're like, oh, I believe all kinds of things. And I know what you mean by that. I mean, obviously, I believe in gravity as long as I'm on Earth. I believe in certain things that are self-evident. Right. But we're, like, we're not debating a flat Earth, you know, kind of situation here. No, right? we're not. No, <laughs> not. And, uh, but like, you know, maybe the only thing I've observed that yeah. I think I could prove that I would say I believe is like cause and effect. I think that like what and, – and all the way down to law of attraction, like what you radiate, you receive. I totally do see I – do, I feel as though I do see that playing out. Beyond that, um, I don't really believe – anything. What I do is I hypothesize about things in real time. And I kind of feel like that's, but I'm permanently uncertain about invisible, unknowable things. And so what what I mean by that is like invisible things like God, unknowable things like the future. I think uncertainty is a great place to start. And I, whatever I wind up in, I want to bring my uncertainty with me um, as almost like a way to keep myself intellectually honest about it. Because um, you know, it, uncertainty is not the enemy of faith. It's the prerequisite of faith, if anything. And so like, I feel as though as I move forward, you know, uh, I, I hate categories, hate them, never liked them. Even way back in the Cademan's days when I was a flaming Calvinist, I always hated when people would say, so are you, are you a Calvinist or something? I would be like, well, what do you, I mean, you know, what would Jesus do? He'd, he'd answer with a follow-up question. I would right. be like, well, well, what do you mean? Like about what? Or like, let's, let's have a conversation. I hate efforts to give short answers to questions for which there are not short answers. And so I don't yes, love yes. those kind of categories. Right. It's, it's too easy to dismiss and dehumanize people and not want yeah. to hear their story. Totally. And I think that's done with people from uh, people, evangelicals who talk about deconstruct deconstructionists or people who are in deconstruction that they speak with one voice about a group of people who are radically all different from one another and have radically different experiences and stories. And so for me, I probably have related the most to being something like a hopeful agnostic. Like, I don't know if I can really know for sure, but I'm very hopeful and leaning forward about it. I definitely acknowledge there being some mystery, some things I can't, that, that I just, my, my question mark box has gotten very full and has expanded size several times since I've started all this. I can't, it can't hold everything I'm trying to put in it. So I know that there's a lot going on that I, that I can't completely explain. So I, I can't, and I won't presume, I couldn't possibly presume to know that there's nothing else going on. I, and, and interestingly, even as I sit before you, that all being true, I have a part-time gig at a church uh, here in Nashville, uh, Grace Point Church, which is I mean, easily the most progressive Why church. Why do I know Grace Point? I think Joel Lumen spoke there at some Joe, point. Joe is a great friend of, of uh, Grace Points and uh, Josh Scott is our pastor. And, okay. Uh, and, uh, you know, we, and, you know, it's basically, if you go to Google and you put in, uh, Nashville gay church, uh, Grace Point is going to come up as the number one hit always, <laughs> um, ma- mainly because it's just a very, 
uh, radically welcoming and affirming and safe place, especially for me. It's like one of those ethical issues that ranks pretty high for me as a litmus test. And this is just me personally. I don't think this is should be everybody's litmus test for is it a is it a, a truly loving, welcoming church? I mean, this is just for me, but I always tend to want to say like how is the church, how is any given church treating the most complicated people in culture or the people who are the most costly to love in culture or whatever it is? Yeah. And so for me, I always want to know uh, how is a particular church handling uh, the treatment of marginalized people, people of color, women, uh, LGBTQ plus people? How, how, what, 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 how are they dealing with all that? Because if they're just going in radically, you know, reputation be damned, I'm like, all right, well, maybe these are some Jesus people. Let's mm-hmm. let's hear what they have to say and let's see what they're what let's see what they're up to. Yeah. Um, Grace Point is always in all the best kinds of trouble here in Nashville and elsewhere. And I got to be friends with the folks there, with Josh Scott, their pastor, from a mutual friend. And even as a non-believing, generally, I would think of myself as a generally non-believing person. Josh was like, dude, come and work with us. Come and be part of the content team. Be, come be, help us not be tone deaf to unbelieving people. Help us get out of all the code speak of evangelicalism. Help us, you know, and so, and I've just loved working with them. And so mm-hmm. I do go to church every week at Grace Point. I help, God knows, I help lead music there sometimes. Um, I work with Ricky Braddy, who's their director of music with Josh, who's their pastor on content stuff and, um, even curriculum development for progressive Christians, which we're working on. And, and I, because I love it, I, I, it, it's still, as Josh would say, my mother tongue, it's like still, um, I'm sure that you know, uh, or have spoken to, um, uh, Dave Bazan, who is obviously a patron saint in this particular space, uh, either his solo work or Pedro the Lion, but like, you know, he would say, I think the same way that I would, that it's like, it's, it's still, it's still all my metaphors, like are going to be, is going to be the Bible. And it's still going to be like, that's like, that's what I, that's what my imagination naturally goes to. I still really care. And a lot of my friends, and it's the prevailing, um, general set of beliefs in the part of the country where I live and most of my friends and family. And I really care what happens in the space and with what, who is doing in Jesus name matters a lot to me. Mm. Um, and so I'm just still really care. And so I continue to write songs about my questions about it. I'm still very preoccupied. You know, I'm, I'm literally working on and soon coming out with a new record and it's called the Jesus hypothesis. And that's like, it's, that's where I'm at. You know, I'm still, I'm not nearly done with it. I don't feel like, I don't think it's done with me, but, um, I am so that, yeah, so that's kind of where I'm at with it. Um, Mm. yeah, that's, that's helpful. You know, I mean, I think a lot of people listening to this are like, okay, I, I think so many, so much of our community is in just like different places with so yeah. much of this. I, I think a lot of it comes down to language. We're trying to find different language to describe certain feelings. I've been thinking about this. I think it's um, Soren Kierkegaard, the philosopher, who yeah. talks about like he kind of posits this. If someone, I'm going to really butcher the idea, but the concept oh, is, yeah, yeah, perfect. You know, just a homeschool guy trying to explain Kierkegaard, about, you know? <laughs> like, let's hear it come out of your mouth. So the idea, I think from what I gathered from talking to some of the people who really know about Kierkegaard is if, if one person be- says that they believe or, or that they are Christian, but embodies none of the, the life of following Christ versus someone who wouldn't identify with any of that belief wise, but would live the, the life of a Christ or of, of Christ. Yeah. Who's the Christian? 
right? And I think like depending on on what worldview you're looking through, like you know, we we obviously have more of the Plato, the Greek, you know, belief yes. is king, but that's not like how everyone sees it. And I think that there's yep. some valid thinking for people like us or myself who have been really um, you know, um kind of um inoculated in that idea like well you have to have the right belief yes. as long as you believe the right thing and i think a lot of us have found that well if if the standard is john macarthur has the right belief but is soft on slavery and protects pedophiles but he's yeah. a great gospel preacher it's like you know i don't know if i'm gonna go with that like i just exactly don't know right. if i can go with that right so yeah. I, I think i think what you're saying probably resonates for a lot of people where they're like yeah like i mean would you say for you as far as like Thinking about Jesus, I mean, obviously, given that 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 we could talk about about the gospel accounts and how they don't line up, and like maybe we don't have the original manuscripts. All right, all that aside, let's yeah. assume like we're reading the gospel accounts. Okay, Jesus somewhere said these things. Yeah. Now, given that, how do you view Jesus now? Because I struggle between. I'm just gonna tell you where I'm at. Then I want to hear where you're at. Yeah, I'm I'm not one of these like, oh, he's just a wise teacher. Sure. Okay, you know, but I'm also not like you know. Oh my gosh, like he is the truth, like the objective truth. And the reason why I say that is because for what I know about the Bible, that's not the categories that 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 the writers talking about Jesus are thinking through. Right. Yes. Like truth is more of like trustworthy in their context than like objective reality, you know? Yes. Uh, and so I, I struggle between those two different things of like there's wisdom, there's something about a new humanity here, something yes. about maybe ultimate reconciliation one day. Don't have words beyond that. So where are you at with some of this stuff? Man, that's so good. I, I really appreciate hearing all of that. And I honestly would say I'm in like an extremely similar place. I I, I mean, I think um I think that that clearly um you can't deny you know, uh, I, I, it'd be hard to deny, to deny Jesus' uh, historical existence. It would be extremely right. hard to deny his significance, right? Um, and something that clearly did set him uniquely apart from other characters in the ancient world, at, or in that part of the world around that time. There was a lot going on, and a lot of sons of God, and a lot. And there was a lot, yes. a lot of sort yes. of language around, mm. you know. Um, like a Caesar would die and then a, there'd be a comet and they'd be like, well, there he is. So now I'm his, I've related to him. So that makes me a son of God because he's a God. And so now it was a very yes. different thing back then, obviously all the language, like you said. And so I think he, he at very least was, I, I, I love everything actually that you just said. I, I don't often, I won't often say, well, I don't really have any more to say about it, but I think, <laughs> it, I think there was clearly something very subversive and disruptive culturally and politically that he was into that got him in a lot of trouble. I think that he, um, I think that he, he, I think that, that his life and a lot of what he did, a lot of his actions to me seem to have a lot more to do with challenging the idea of empire and what empire represented in the ancient world at that time than it might have. And it would explain a lot more why Rome was so pissed off at him. Um, then it wasn't because he was just so radically loving people. Like you don't, you didn't really wind up on a Roman cross for that back then. Um, you know, right. it would have to have been a challenge to the status quo in, in, in ways that you, we, we would have to describe as political, as uncomfortable as we might get with that right. uh, here today. But, um, I, so, so, Definitely something significant, something mysterious, something that I certainly do not have sorted out and am still curious enough to want to get to the bottom of. But in addition, I loved everything you said about kind of how we are more obsessed with and our worldview generally philosophically is about right belief. And it's like, what do you do if you have healthy fruit on a tree, but questionable seeds 
versus seeds that looked right going in the ground, but rotten fruit hanging on the thing. And so it's right. like, it, like in terms of the, the, the role that belief plays in necessarily showing itself, I think, you know, with our theological backgrounds, we could say like, it's like the evidence of right belief hangs on the tree. And so <laughs> right. it's, it's, the, it's the quality of, it's, it's showing the quality of faith, not uh, in addition to, and all that sort of thing. We can get into all sure, that. Sure, sure. would be fun to talk about. But the point of it is, like I find myself to be a more compassionate and kind and generous person on the other side of what I would have called my decades of evangelical faith than, yeah. I, than I was then. And, and I don't know that maybe I'm free of a preoccupation about a right belief in Jesus, Yeah. but maybe I'm engaging with it in a way that is actually affecting me in the way that the, the, the biblical writers might have been talking about because it is affecting my ethics it is affecting the true the fruit on the tree and there is a distinction i see between myself now and myself 10 years ago myself 20 years ago and so and so and maybe i got i've gotten something mysteriously right about my pursuit of it and i'm not sure what that is and it wasn't certainly not a particular prayer set at a particular time uh but but maybe i found it just to the extent that it's producing unconditional love and, and, and generosity in my life to it, uh, that I can look at and say, man, this is, this is Jesus like to me. And this is yes. God like to me. And this is like the energy that around this thing that I think, and that's what grace point does. In my opinion, it's like the way that they love and take care of and the way that they move towards and radically welcome and the way that they promote and voice and platform people and the way that they, I'm like, man, this just feels this is this is feels like what it's about, and I mm. and I, I might not be able to put my fingers anymore on. But how exact? What was the precise theological moment and trigger that 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 enabled it and got us there? I don't know, but man, I feel like we're 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 all kind of soaking in it now, and yes. so I'm less preoccupied with how we got here, more preoccupied with how it feels to be here. And yeah. anyway, that makes a lot of sense. You know, I think one part that I, I, I like my headspace right now is. A while ago, I interviewed Trip Fuller. I love Trip; he's great. Yes, yeah. And um, I asked him the question. I said, "You know, Trip, I gotta know. You know, did the virgin birth really happen? You know, did it really happen?" Right. And in Trip's like, "Listen, you know, you can make arguments like biblically for and against, but he's like, listen. But besides all that, maybe instead of thinking about it like if it's objectively true or not, if it helps you understand that the, at the center of the universe is divine love, then believe it." And, I was, and, and that that shifted me because, like, for for a while, I was like. Do I affirm the Nicene Creed? Do I affirm the Trinity? Is it right? Is it wrong? But right. instead of that category of is this objective, an objective reality or not, it's does it help me understand that at the center of the universe is love and God as expressed through the Trinity expresses that and in, in embodies it? Yes, I affirm it then. Right. Does that make yeah. sense? And like Absolutely. that has taken off such a huge burden off my back yes. because I've realized that, like, you know. I, and I, I, we are running out of time. So just yeah. a last thought and I'll, I'll hear from you. Um, but I realized that one of the biggest, um, maybe illusions that I've gotten from like the evangelical apologist world is like, Hey, evidence demands a verdict. Right. And it's like, okay, if we're talking about, it, is the earth flat or not? Yes, it does. And we can objectively prove, right? Like yeah. we can actually show flat earthers how it's not flat. And that's yeah. why in academic circles, there's no flat earth department trying to advocate for why the earth is flat, right? But when it comes to theology, when it comes to how we're expressing or trying to understand an infinite unknowable thing, 
Hmm. Of course, we're going to have those departments because it's not it's not it's the wrong category to put on, on, on a subject that is not about objectiveness or not in, right. in, in many ways. Right. right. And right. so so that has helped me go from, oh, my God, is this right or wrong to I want to explore this yeah. room and and understand like how does James Cone approach the crucifixion when he writes you know uh, um, the the cross and the lynching tree right like when he writes right. that book and he's like the black bodies that were lynched are 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 one with Christ as Christ was crucified by the empire I'm wow, like yes. oh my god. I yeah. have never thought about that, right? Yes. And and that's and that's a way of exploring how we look at what at what the crucifixion is through the lens of a people group who have been marginalized yes. in a country, right? At the hands of other Christians yeah. saying, "No, your bodies are not welcome here." That yeah. that is way different than well, is James Cone objectively right or not about the crucifixion? Like you're yeah. you're, you're missing it. So that has yeah. helped me immensely just to explore the vast, beautiful world of, of theology and theologians who have just so much to offer us instead yeah. of trying to view it as right or wrong. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things I love is, so John, I've become a huge fan of John Shelby Spong. Oh yeah. Yeah. I have his books. Yeah. yeah. I, I just really, that guy's really intense it. though. <laughs> he, is, he, is. he is not for the faint of heart, especially no, for deconstruction. <laughs> no, he's not. He's not, but I was really ready. I just happened to find him at just the right moment. Mm. Um, and uh, I think I read Jesus from the non-religious, um, um, mm. I think was I think is the name of that book. Anyways, it was fantastic for me. The point is, what he'll often say. I've got two th- quick thoughts on that, and we can wrap up. But like, uh, one is that he often talks about how whether or not the story. It, it, and, and Josh uh, Scott, our pastor at Grace Point, often says the same thing. He's a huge Spong uh, guy too. But um, he would say it. It might not be so important about like some of these stories that we're not sure if they literally happened or if they're poetic or if they're metaphor or if they're whatever. It's like what Spong would say is this is the way that people in that time and place, they had an experience with Jesus and they were trying to communicate to us what that experience was like. And they ran out of language. They hit a, they hit a ceiling with language and they had to get up into this whole other category of language to put on it, to try to explain it in order to explain what it felt like to be with him and what it felt like to be what it was like to be there and, 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 and what it, and, and what he was doing. And, and so like, sometimes that's where we wind up in some of this language that it's hard for us to know. And honestly, I don't know that I am going to divide with friends or have such a hard, I'm not going to argue with people about things that neither of us can really know. We can't, you can't know for sure. You can't, that that's unfortunately one of the, one of the issues with theology as a discipline is you, we, we can look at it and we can, yes, you can look at evidence and yes, you can, but at the end of the day, we, we, we can't, no more than we can know the future with certainty. Can we know for sure what some of this might have meant or what some of it represented or if it was literal or a metaphor? We can't. And which brings me to the last thing that another, another thing that Josh always says that I really love is like, we've gotten, I think as evangelicals, we've gotten, I just said we, and I don't, I don't really consider myself evangelical, <laughs> but the point is, as it just shows how, how, how slippery that slope is for me. You're just in, a new evangelical in, now. <laughs> in, 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 both, in both directions. But anyways, what we do is we get so obsessed with the sign that we, we forget to look at the sign and what it's signifying and follow the sign. And so right. people, and Josh did a whole series on the signs and wonders of Jesus. And he's like, we're so obsessed on how many people pull up to a stop sign and sit there and stare at it and obsess about like what shade of red is it? What shape is it? What does it really <laughs> right. say? 
you look at it, you're like, oh, it's a sign. I see it. I acknowledge it. It tells me to stop, and now I'm supposed to go. I'm not supposed to sit here and live obsessed on the sign. I'm supposed to see what it's telling you, what is information it's trying to tell me, right. and then keep going. And so it's like, I think that that's the problem is I used to be so obsessed on all the signs yes. and understanding and obsessing on what they literally looked like and what shape and what height and what language they were in, that I didn't just look at what the signs were saying and follow them. And I think that's so much more important to me now, and I'm not so obsessed on. And so what you were saying before about finding divine love at the center of the universe expressed this way, it it just sounds to me like you've zoomed it out a little bit. And now I have a higher ethic by which to judge some of these things where it doesn't have to come down to the jot and tittle of all the theology and what I can explain and justify and understand. It's like, here is the context of how I believe this works. And that helps to get me out of the nuances and weeds of things that ultimately are not helpful, especially for lay people who are not, I'm not a professional academic. I don't need to be off reading some of this stuff. I need to look at how it's affecting the people in my community. I need to look at the fruit on my own tree and all the trees around me. Right. Um, and as some evidence of something at least, because yeah. there's at least some evidence. Yeah. Um, and I think that, um, you know, as James would have said, I think I would say that if you're going to follow up, as I understand him, as I sit before you today, a person like Jesus mm-hmm. um, and something like divine love at the center of the universe and, and that energy, which I, which I even hear in Jensen Chero's language or anyone's language, really. Um, ultimately, I, I do, I, I only can see it in radical love and welcome and representation and, um, and, you know, I, in, in some of that kind of work in the theology you were taught, those, those, those schools of theology you were mentioning before, right. that's where I see it. And if that language and those metaphors help to center me on and help me find it in unlikely places that I'm right. going to follow that, you know, theology, you know, uh, the, theologians be damned a little bit. And that's how I've managed to rescue myself out of, you know, Calvinism or whatever, you know, yeah. and, and, I, and I, but again, I don't hate it because it's all part of how I got here. Um, and so, you know, so yeah, so I think all those seasons can belong, but, uh, I love, I love the way you describe it, man. I love the, the way that you're focused on the work that you're doing in the space that you're creating and holding for people to be in all those spots and be able to still gather and think critically about it. It really, it means a lot. It's super important. And, and, uh, I'm just cheering you on in, in, uh, in, in the work you're doing, man. I really, really appreciate it. It honestly means a lot, Derek, truly. Um, you know, we're all just trying to make this. We're just, I feel like we're in one big conversation together, right? And I, it's just such a, it's such a, a posture shift from who's in, who's out, and yes. more about just like, hey, man, like, can we just talk about this stuff? Yeah. You know, like, well, and, we're all bigger than all of us, right? <laughs> and ultimately, it's about people not feeling alone and feeling like it's, yeah. it's that, that to me has been in the second half of my life so far has been the thing that's mattered more than anything. It's people yeah. realizing they are not the only ones going through it, they are not alone. Um, and there, there, there's a cloud of witnesses of people who have been through the deconstruction, who are on every side of it now, but who are people who are with you. You're, you're not the only one going through it. And I think that's the hard part about people who probably find their way to your content, who are either on the exit ramp or the entry ramp, but they're, they're on, they're transitioning one way or the other. It's just the most important thing people can know is that they are not alone in going through it. Yeah. There are a lot of other people who really care about this space and that they're welcome to gather with a lot of other people here. The church is so good at congregating. Yes. And that's why I think spaces like yours are so important because it's like a re-congregating right. of people who feel, you know, orphaned on the other side of confusion and disbelief. And so yeah. that's why I think it's so important. So thank you again for having me. Thanks for again for the for doing what you're doing. Um 
Yeah, yeah, it was great having you. Thanks for sharing your story. I, I know it's uh, it's just helpful. It's always cool to hear people's background. So obviously keep yeah. in touch. I'm sure we'll talk more. I, yes. I, I feel like you and I can nerd out over music stuff forever. We'll, um, we'll do that and, again sometime. That'd uh, be great. I would love to. So keep in touch. Absolutely. Thanks. <laughs>